You are tuned in to Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with my uh, tech nerd friends, AJ Vickery and John Beeler. We got an awesome show today, guys. Uh, later on, we'll be talking uh, with Sasha Luciani. She is uh, Director of Scientific Projects, uh, AI for Humanity at uh, Mila. Uh, we'll be talking to her about... AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and how scientists are using that to combat the coronavirus and everything from trying to create a new vaccine to things like contact tracing uh, as well. It is actually a fascinating interview, so I encourage you to uh, stay tuned for that. We'll also be talking with Cheryl Abbott. She will be chatting to us about a new life insurance program from Manulife. And I know, okay, that doesn't sound exciting, but what is exciting is how they've gamified your life insurance. Uh, you can actually get uh, a free Apple Watch, and by actually doing activity, you can lower your monthly insurance premiums. How's that sound, AJ? <laughs> I'm going to attach it to my dog. And, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be so cheap in my life insurance. Uh, AJ, I've I've seen your dogs. <laughs> I'm going to buy a healthy dog. Okay. Yeah, your current dogs, uh, you'll get points taken away. And your insurance premiums will triple. Uh, oh, I remember when the smart cars used to have those um, uh, built-in gamified things to help reduce the driving, right? So they would they they took it out, but if you if you rented like a car to go, for example, uh, they would um, you would get points, and and the the green park would grow trees, and birds would come and nest in them, and things would like it would like, and that was based on you not using uh, too much brakes and not accelerating too much. But well, I think the problem is is that I was I game the system, and uh, I figured out by like not using any brakes and sliding through corners. <laughs> I was like, I was my, my, my things were growing and birds were coming, but I was like driving recklessly and horribly. So uh, all the animals, work. all the animals by the side of the road were dead though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's look at some of the tech news here on uh, get connected that we're following. And this is an interesting one. Uh, MIT develops a way to use wireless signals from in-home appliances to better understand your health. Okay, so let's let's break this down. They've developed a, a new system. I I believe it's uh, called Sapple. I, I don't know why it's called Sapple, but let's just keep running with that. It uses two sensors placed in a person's home, and it can actually detect the pattern of devices uh, that someone in the home is using from their, I guess, frequencies, radio frequencies. This includes things like stoves, hair dryers, uh, and and more. And the idea behind this is that uh, caregivers, for example, uh, would know that you know their patients, you know, they don't have to be there. Is actually or they're actually taking care of themselves by cooking things and looking after their personal hygiene. Any issues here, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you start? <laughs> well, one one of the things that's interesting about this, though, because th there is technology to do this kind of stuff now, but you have to attach something to every device. Yeah. And it's then measuring the electrical usage, for example, is one way of doing it. And that can be expensive, and that can also be... Um, uh, kind of a pain as well because some of these devices are small um, this is sounds very simplified and basically just puts a couple of things in your house that aren't attached to anything specific so that sounds cool um, but <laughs> there is a the few, you know like we suggested there might be a couple other issues with this too is like um, it doesn't necessarily know why you're using something you know like are you using the hairdryer to uh, 
do something other than dry hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Torment your cat. I don't know. Um, Take it into the bathtub with you because <laughs> life's just too difficult. Like, well, I got to be honest. I'm afraid that Mike, you're going to put this in my place, and 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 during this like work from home thing, see that like, <laughs> my shower is not running nearly enough as it should be. Well, we know that already. Uh, uh, your wife's been tweeting this out <laughs> daily now. <laughs> Day 28, he still hasn't had a shower. <laughs> Or washed his underwear. <laughs> or washed his underwear. So, yeah, they've actually, so it's two sensors. And so when I thought sensors, you know, we've seen a lot of devices that have sensors. Like my my thermostat has extra little sensors I can put around the home. But, you know, they're like the size of a loony or, or a toonie. These sensors are gigantic. <laughs> they're like, you know, a couple feet by, a you know, a foot and a half uh, in size. So they're like these giant plates that you got to put on, on your wall. You know, on one side, it could be good for caregivers. And, you know, obviously with the aging population, this might be a good way to kind of keep track of uh, elderly folks or elderly parents without, you know, a, a full invasion of their privacy. Well, and that, that could be interesting, too, because if, if that information can be exposed to, say, a family member that's concerned about that particular person, uh, that could be good as well, just so they, they know what's going on. There, there's been a lot of discussion lately about putting cameras into care homes and stuff like that so that family members can sort of keep tabs on the, their, their loved ones and uh, the concern about that and overhearing other residents and that type of stuff, whereas this is much more passive and it's much more uh, just to let us know that you know the lights are on and someone's using the hairdryer or whatever. You know what this reminded me is another study um, of some Wi-Fi technology, and I think both of you guys have uh, also heard of examples of this, but I knew um, that uh, in uh, New Jersey and Rutgers, there was a university spe- uh, specializing in Wi-Fi research, and they were able to use Wi-Fi and some of the information contained within the bands um, to detect movement within the house. So you could take like already installed uh, routers or, or Wi-Fi that's in your home or on your phone uh, and actually... Um, pick up movement in the house as well so you'd be able to see if people were like you know upstairs or downstairs or out of the house and all these kinds of things pick up things like heart rate and all that kind of stuff all contained in information that could be pulled out of the bands and wi-fi so this kind of reminded me of that in a in a way or at least something like that being used with this to even get more enhanced yeah no i I read about that study too aj and i think we've talked a little bit about it on the program before but that is an interesting one and uh, there's all sorts of privacy implications uh there uh, you know, who has access to that, for example, you know, you know, would your ISP, if they provide you a modem and Wi-Fi router, would they have access to that information? Like, it, not only did it measure the heart rate, but it, uh, you know, was also able to uh, actually measure your emotions because it could detect uh, uh, your heart rate and actually your breathing it could see if you were excited or happy or, or depressed, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, uh, cool in one way that they can <laughs> figure that technology out, but from a privacy side, doesn't that kind of freak you out? Yeah, that's a nightmare to deal with. Uh, you know, I think the technology is cool, like you say, because it can tell us so much in something that's already in every single house. Uh, but you're right, once you start collecting that data and parsing it and using AI to determine what people are doing and and, and how they're feeling, <sighs> scary. Okay, uh, we've got a lot going on here in the program today. Later on, we'll be talking about how artificial intelligence and machine learning is helping combat the coronavirus. So some fascinating stuff on how they're able to use that to uh, not only sequence uh, the genome of it, uh, but also accelerate uh, the vaccination process or the research uh, into that. 
Let's also talk about our contest. We're giving away this week a Belkin wireless charging stand, a special edition in white. Uh, this is for all the new phones out there that have wireless charging capabilities. You just basically put it on the dock and it'll charge for you without uh, any wires. It's pretty cool. Again, the Belkin wireless charging stand, special edition in white. To enter to win, hit our website, getconnectedmedia.com. Hit the newsletter tab and subscribe and you're entered to win this contest and all the contests going forward. When we come back from the break, we'll learn how uh, life insurance uh, premiums can be reduced by wearing an Apple Watch. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. Still lots to talk about in today's uh, program. Uh, I'm excited about uh, one of the segments coming up. Uh, We will be chatting uh, all about artificial intelligence and how it's being used to fight the COVID-19 virus. Right now, though, I want to talk about something interesting I came across. Uh, I was in the process of um, renewing some of my life insurance, and it's really interesting some of the the, the programs that are available out uh, there right now, ones that uh, let you even use uh, an Apple Watch to uh, help bring down your premium. On the line, we've uh, got Cheryl Abbott. She's with Bloom Financial, and uh, we want to talk today about... uh, a new program from Manulife called Vitality. Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. So uh, we actually had a you know a long discussion about this, and I found it quite uh, fascinating. Uh, so this program it's it's basically life insurance, but uh, it uh, it's kind of. Uh, gamification it uh, it makes you want to be healthy uh, and actually can uh, help you uh, track your uh, overall activity on a daily and weekly basis to help bring down your uh, your insurance premiums well exactly the the life insurance program is linked to your apple watch so that you can uh, use the apple watch features to motivate you to get active and uh, those will help bring your premiums down what i found interesting uh, john this was uh, kind of neat you love playing games as well. You get points for all sorts of different uh, things. Like, you know, if you get a, a flu shot annually, you get a number of points. Uh, depending on how much activity, you get points uh, during a, a daily basis. And you can actually level up to different levels uh, throughout the year. I think it starts at, at bronze, uh, goes up to silver, gold, and then uh, then platinum. What kind of um, rewards are we looking at, uh, Cheryl? Well, the main rewards of the Vitality program is the, uh, the Apple Watch, Amazon gift cards, and Hotels.com. And you earn these rewards basically through healthy living and activity. The main motivation really linked to the Apple Watch is the activity. And uh, uh, from what I understand, uh, there's also a discount uh, to purchase, say, uh, an Apple Watch out of the gate. When you um, purchase your life insurance, you're invited to join the Vitality program. And as soon as you join, you have an opportunity to buy a discounted Apple Watch. So um, the Apple Watch 3 and 5 are both available through the program right now. The free, the Apple Watch 3 is free, and uh, you do pay the taxes on the watch. And the Apple Watch 5, I think, is $79, and you pay the taxes on that as well. Once you have the Apple Watch, you link it to your Vitality app, and um, it starts to track your point, your activity point. That seems like a significant uh, deal. <laughs> if you can get a, a Series 5 watch for... $80 plus tax. Um, yeah, they're usually uh, like five or 600 bucks, aren't they? Yeah, because I bought one not too long ago and it was about $600 all in. Yes, it's, it's a significant discount. The thing is that you're paying a monthly fee for the watch, but that fee is waived if you reach your activity goals that month. But it's not that bad from the um, the activity goals I, I saw. Uh, you know, it's as little as I think around four or 5,000 uh, steps uh, uh, a day, which, you know, I think most people, if they're doing even some moderate activity, uh, they can uh, easily uh, achieve. 
the, there's a whole, I guess, privacy thing here as as well, uh, Cheryl. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this Apple Watch has to be linked to, uh, you know, the, the insurance company. You know, what else are they using that information for? Well, I think it's, it's key to know that your Apple Watch is linked to the Vitality app. And so all of the information does go to Vitality, but it doesn't go to the insurance company. The insurance company gets your points so that they can use your points levels to, to select your, your level in the program, bronze, silver, gold, or, or platinum. And whichever level you're at, that's the discount that applies to your insurance and um, the rewards that you achieve. So they're not tracking how many times uh, like John and I would be down at the pub on a daily basis? No, they don't have access to the GPS. <laughs> Uh, how has this been received? Like uh, when I when I heard about this, um, I I found it fascinating. I was uh, all in on it, but uh, d- you know, does this uh, you know appeal to you know all ages? I think that the key is that um, people people come to me looking for life insurance. They're they're wanting their life insurance. So when I tell them about the program, you either are very excited about it, you want to get engaged, you want to be motivated um, to get healthier because let, let's face it, your life insurance premiums are linked to your health. And so um, if you're healthier and your prices come down, that's great. Um, I'm finding it's more in the 40 plus range that people are excited about it. Um, they're, they're recognizing the, the risks as we age and wanting to be motivated, wanting one more piece to get motivated to get active. I think one of the things that is attractive about this particular program, though, is the watch in the sense that uh, aside from, you know, lowering your premiums by doing activities, there's a lot of other healthy benefits that Mike and I have talked about uh, a lot on the show about doing things like monitoring your heart rate and, and other things like that and, and giving you notifications if there's anything irregular uh, health-wise. Um, so just from a, a, a the, the medical standpoint of the benefits of the watch itself, let alone reducing your life insurance premiums, which are always a good thing, uh, it, it seems pretty compelling to me. I think that the Apple Watch is really the key to the program. You, you actually can instead purchase a, a Garmin um, device. Actually, you don't purchase it. It's free with the program. So when you sign up, you are invited to get to uh, order a Garmin device. But what I've found is that the Apple Watch has so many more features and links so much more seamlessly to give you your points that uh, clients who opt for the Garmin don't seem to engage in the program in the same way and achieve the points levels um, as the people who who select the Apple Watch. I guess uh, all the Android uh, people out there, John, are... <laughs> are probably going to have to go with the Garmin watch, eh? Perhaps, yeah. Or they're uh, feverishly uh, writing us uh, hate mail right now. <laughs> the Garmin watch does work, but the Garmin does, doesn't seamlessly link in the same way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've just seen, I've seen more success with people who select the Apple. Well, and that that was kind of my angle before when I bought my Apple Watch. I, I upgraded from a Series 3 to a 5 because of the health benefits. And, you know, I'm getting a little bit older, uh, as is Mike. And so having these uh, features on my wrist to, you know, alert me or keep track of things that I should be concerned about, even when I'm not aware of them being a problem, is a huge benefit for, for the Apple Watch. And I haven't really found any other uh, smartwatch that can sort of touch that and regardless of platform so it makes sense that you offer this and then you also give people the choice of the Garmin as well which I definitely some people love as you know as they should well I love the, the whole gamification of it and uh, uh, getting points for actually doing more activity uh, and uh, you know reducing some of the uh, insurance uh, costs there Cheryl I want to thank you for joining us on the program today and where can people find out more information uh, about what you do if you go to the 
the Manulife uh, website and search Vitality, you can actually find an advisor in your area and it will give you all their contact information. That was Cheryl Abbott. She's with Bloom Financial uh, here in the Vancouver Lower Mainland. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how computing and artificial intelligence is being used to combat the COVID-19 virus. Back after this. You are back with Mike Agarbo and John Beeler. Let's uh, talk artificial intelligence and uh, how it can be used to hopefully battle the COVID-19 virus. On the line, we've uh, got our good friend Sasha Lucioni. She is the Director of Scientific Projects, uh, Artificial Intelligence for Humanity at Mila. Thanks for joining us, Sasha. Glad to be here. So artificial intelligence uh, is used for a number of different things, uh, but you guys are researching on how you can battle the uh, the COVID-19 virus. What are you guys up to? So um, when, all, when this all started, we reached out to some uh, colleagues of ours who work with the WHO and the UN. And um, we what started out as a conversation ended up as an article. So we wrote an article about how AI can help um, the co- well, fighting the COVID pandemic. And we identified a bunch of different ways. Essentially, you know, Scientists, we want to know all the different options before we settle on one. So we figured out that, you know, we can work on vaccine creation. We can work on improving uh, CT scan uh, identification on uh, epidemiology on different all, all different scales. And so uh, essentially we published this paper and people at Mila. So there's a bunch of researchers working on, on different parts uh, that we identified. So there is a group of researchers working on, for example, using AI in order to explore all the like billions of possible molecules that can eventually be uh, treatments for COVID. So essentially to do this by uh, simulating the, the molecular structure of the COVID protein and uh, the molecular structures of the other molecules that they're looking at and seeing how they bind together. And based on this, like it's basically a simulation in, in in AI space and based on this you can uh, predict how well what their affinity is and the better they bind the more chances there are of, of having of using them as a treatment essentially so there's a group working on that it's really interesting because you can essentially search you know uh, hundreds of millions of molecules in a, sh- a relatively short amount of time which can take a lot longer if you're like synthesizing them and, and trying them in vitro so AI can help kind of create like this simulated world for, for vaccines and, and uh, for cures which is they're making some really great progress. Um, it's pretty exciting. Um, and then there's also um, some researchers working on, for example, how to optimize ventilator um, uh, attribution in hospitals based on projections. So essentially uh, using different uh, levels of data. So national data, regional data, uh, municipal data in order to predict, uh, for example, tomorrow, how many patients there are. And so to allocate resources within a hospital and within within like uh, um, a public serv- a public hospital system in, in the way that some, for example, sometimes they can even send ventilators from one region to another, from one county to another, knowing that there's going to be more patients in that county. So um, that's a really interesting project because they're using real data and, and kind of making predictions in real time. Uh, so that's really excited. And then we have also um, a researcher working on improving um, diagnosis of, of COVID using CT uh, imagery. So uh, he made actually this uh, website where um, you can download his model and test it on, on, on CT scan so they can use this in hospitals. And um, it could actually be a good way of testing for COVID 
while waiting, for example, for a positive diagnosis. So for example, you go, someone arrives in a hospital and they have symptoms and then they send out their test, but during the 24 hours that it can take sometimes to get a positive diagnosis for COVID, you can use CT scans to kind of get an idea of whether, like what, what the probability of that person having COVID or not is, and then something that can be coupled with uh, the, the eventual tests. So that's another that's another thing that's been work, being worked on. We're talking about, uh, I think a lot of people are uh, concerned about a vaccine uh, right now. You talked about how artificial intelligence is being used to see virtually how, uh, you know, you, you said like a billion different mole- molecules would bind with the COVID-19 uh, virus. Uh, has, has this been done before with artificial intelligence? Like how, how effective uh, has it been if it, it, if it has? So it hasn't been done for a vaccine. It has been done for antibiotics. So um, essentially, I don't know if you know, but um, we're having more and more uh, drug resistant bacteria. Uh, and so there has have been cases, essentially the, the issue is, is that there's such a large space that can be explored, even for antibiotics, there's there's different types of antibiotics and some of them are, are more you know large scale or, or, or narrow. And so uh, essentially using AI, you can explore spaces that haven't been explored before and then essentially create molecules that we haven't either that don't exist or we haven't discovered yet. So, um, so yeah, so for, for, the, uh, for the antibiotics, it has been used and, and there was a publication, I think it was just last year, uh, as a proof of concept, but it's never been used for, for vaccines yet. So this is like a completely new, brave new world. No, it's, uh, it's fascinating, um, you know, for the antibiotics, like how, how much did that speed up the process? Do you have an idea of that? Well, so essentially the bottleneck is, um, is testing. So uh, once you uh, identify some molecules, after that you can synthesize them and you can test them in vitro using um, samples of the virus essentially. And then you can already get an idea if it's working as well in your uh, Petri dish as it worked in your simulation. So that's like a first step. And then say from like 100 promising uh, molecules, you'll narrow it down to 20. But then those 20 still have to be tested in mice and humans and et cetera, et cetera. And so the bottleneck is always going to be human testing, which is good because you want it to be safe and there are things that should be explored, right? So so I think with AI, it, it can give you kind of an idea of things to test, but it's, for example, it can't predict how uh, humans will react to the vaccine because it doesn't have that data. All it has is the data of binding, right? There's no anatomical data as such, physiological data. So they don't know. Maybe maybe the molecule that it, it pr- proposed is actually poisonous to humans. That's something that has to be tested <laughs> yeah, down the course. line. Yeah, of course. No, it, but it's... Sorry, John. Sorry, Mike. I was going to say, it basically helps you speed up the process of elimination, at least to narrow your focus and figure out where to spend the, the, the actual lab time instead of uh, trying to go through every single thing, like the billions of molecules, like you mentioned, right? So Exactly. And then uh, typically for, for example, for antibiotics research, it's been kind of a hit or miss, or, or you know that this family of molecules, there's a lot of antibiotics in that general direction, so you'll go there. Well, what if there's this whole other family of molecules that you haven't even looked at yet because it just hasn't come up yet, right? So actually, like, anti- antibiotics have been discovered by accident in a lot of cases, right? And, and, and vaccines, it's taken years and years of work to discover this, and, and you still base yourself off of, you know, other things like things that have been working uh, for different types of flu, right? Like you can base yourself off of something, but you'll always, you know, be biased in that direction. And AI can kind of helps you open open the perspectives a bit larger and say, well, this completely this molecule, maybe it's used in something completely like different. Maybe it's like you know something that's organic. Maybe it's a compound that's found in onions or or, or some random thing, and then maybe it, it will help, right? So it, it's like yeah, it's a way of broadening your horizon. 
you know, my question is, uh, th- this is all fascinating, and I can see how this would speed up, uh, you know, the research. But you talked about the testing, not having the human physiological data. Will we get to a point in the future where we'll have that digitized so that um, we could test these things virtually on virtual humans? Do you know what I mean? I think that I, I know that personalized medicine is becoming more and more of a thing, but um, I think that even if you sequence someone's genome and you really know exactly you know what we're made out of on a cell, cellular cellular level, there's also other levels that are harder to predict. For example, you know an organ level or an environmental level or, or et cetera, et cetera, like things that we're being exposed to and uh, side effects of our condition changing. For example, what happens like if you if you sequence someone's genome but then they become diabetic or they have high cholesterol that's something that i don't think we're at the point of 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 of, of uh, de- detecting that on on a molecular level yet so i think that there's work to be done in terms of understanding how we work better because ai is all about data and and the better the data is the better your simulation is going to be so i don't think that we're there in terms of creating you know a, a virtual human like how the brain works if we want to cure alzheimer's with with a drug, right? We don't know how the brain works well enough in order to input that into an AI algorithm and tell it, you know, optimize whatever whatever this is. We we don't have an idea. How far away? How far away do you think we are from that? Is that like years, hundreds of years? No, I think that I think it's probably between in the next twenty years we'll have some breakthrough. I think that the brain is kind of the last frontier because it's so complex. But for Things that are a bit more simple, I don't know, like blood pressure or something, you know, things that are a bit more straightforward, uh, we could we can make progress faster. But a lot of people are actually working on um, the, the, the connection between, you know, neuroscience and AI because they realize that it's kind of an anecdote, but neural networks, right? Neural networks are, are, are a, a tool of AI, a type of algorithm that is um, inspired by the brain. But we're so far gone now in terms of neural network architectures that no one talks about it being brain inspired anymore. It's kind of like, yeah, well, back in the day, someone came up with it and it was inspired by the brain. But there's this whole kind of uh, 180 that's happening. And then now that we're talking about um, bio inspired AI and, and vice versa, like uh, neuroscience using some discoveries from AI. So there's like a lot of uh, a lot of uh, connections being made now. And I think that the more that these kinds of connections are made between neuroscientists and and AI practitioners or, or clinicians and AI practitioners, the more we have a potential of finding something that works uh, in, in both cases. We're talking uh, with our good friend, uh, Sasha Lucioni. She is uh, an expert researcher into uh, artificial intelligence at uh, Mila. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll chat with her a little bit more about some of the computing power that uh, is necessary to make this happen. Back after this. You are back with Mike Agarbo and John Beeler here on Get Connected. So we're talking all about artificial intelligence and uh, how... Some researchers are, are using it to uh, attack the COVID-19 virus, uh, everything from developing vaccines to diagnosis of, uh, of uh, folks that, uh, that have it. On the line, we've got Sasha Lucioni. She's the Director of Scientific Projects, uh, Artificial Intelligence for Humanity at uh, Mila. Sasha, what kind of computing power do you need to make this happen? We talked about, uh, you know, scientists... Um, using artificial intelligence to basically research how well like a billion different types of molecule molecules would actually bind with the COVID-19 uh, virus. 
is this something I can go down to uh, uh, Best Buy and buy an HP laptop and, and start doing this? Or are we talking, you know, big computing power? The approach that's being used in the Molecule Discovery Project is uh, called reinforcement learning. And the way that works is that essentially you have, it's the, it's the same approach that was used for um, AlphaGo, all those um, kind of game-based and Atari and things like that. So essentially you have uh, something that you want to complete a task, for example, discovering a molecule that has 100% binding power with COVID. And essentially you're trying to optimize the way that you do this task and you do it hundreds of thousands of times. So essentially it doesn't require that much computing power as such because the the approach used, the, the neural network is not that that complex, isn't that deep, but you have to do it a lot of times. So essentially you can do it on an HP laptop. It'll just take you a while because you have to, um, you can run it one, one by one, one task by one task, but you can also parallelize it. And then essentially in order to make uh, several threads, several parallel experiments, for that you need GPUs. So that is beginning to to be a kind of a mainstream thing. And the more um, the more efficient your GPU, the more powerful your GPU, the more uh, parallel tasks you can have going. So um, at Mila, we do have like clusters of GPUs, but it's not actually um, that's the thing. It's not a question of you know having this really really powerful computer. It's essentially a question of finding the the perfect way to tune your your task so that it gets completed uh, successfully. So then you have to pr- play around with parameters and things like that. So that that's where it gets messy. But in terms of computing power, it's really not that not that bad. So you talked about GPUs, and just for the listeners, uh, that's uh, a graphical processor, right? Like in a, yes. in, a, in a video card, for example. Exactly. Yes. For so it exists nowadays, and most computers, a lot of computers have them, especially gaming computers. Um, now, what's uh, what's used uh, a lot for uh, machine learning are TPUs, which are tensor processing units, which are like the next step from uh, GPUs that can have like a lot of more parallel computations per second. Essentially, why a GPU is better than a CPU or, or more efficient in, in, in any case for machine learning is that you can have, sev- you have you can have more things going on at once. You can have more parallel co- computations at once. That doesn't mean it can store more memory, uh, store like have more have more storage. It just means that it can do parallel things. It can multitask better. How is that compared to like our brains? Can we parallel <laughs> task? I know as a man, I have a hard time doing more than one thing at a time. I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> no, but it's interesting. So uh, Yashua Benchia, who's uh, our, our scientific director of Mila, he has, um, he's working a lot um, on, on neuro-inspired AI. And so essentially, uh, as humans, we tend to have two ways of processing things. We have the fast, fast route and the slow route. And so, for example, if you're doing something uh, like you're doing your dishes, it's going to tend to take the fast route because you've already done this before because, or, I mean, <laughs> I assume. Um, so you have things that you do on, on more or less autopilot, like driving, like walking, right? You don't really think about putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, and then you have the slow uh, kind of processing thing. That's when you have to learn a new task or, or, or learn about GPUs. Then your brain can kind of slow down a bit and you have to go slower. And so right now, the way the way that AI works, it's mostly kind of this uh, automatic fast processing, like you don't really think about what we're doing and you just put data in and you just get stuff out. Essentially the AI that exists now is more of this fast processing speed. Like you have a robot washing dishes, but we haven't figured out how to do the slow kind of rational, uh, you know, logical thing. We don't, we can't ask a neural network to explain why, uh, why a decision was made, why a certain molecule binds with another, that that's still kind of up in the air. And so he's concentrating a lot on this kind of explainable AI on, on the slow AI part, but this is a whole new, uh, domain of AI. 
So slow, slow AI. You think you'd want fast AI, but slow AI is where it's at in the future. Well, we have computers that can do like really fast facial recognition. But then again, when we ask it, you know, why, like, for example, if something goes wrong, right, if uh, someone gets misidentified using a facial recognition algorithm, the machine will be able to tell you why this person looks like someone on FBI's most wanted list. They're not going to be able to say, well, they have a similar nose or this guy has a baseball hat or whatever. And so this is where a lot of people are working right now. Explainable AI, transparent AI, ethical AI. That's like a, a really important part of AI right now because we realize that fast is good in some cases, but even if your autonomous car can drive, you still want to understand how it's making its choice. <laughs> Why did you knock John off the side of the road on his bicycle? Right. And and then what if there's bias, right? What if all of a sudden you realize that it's discriminating against a certain, you know, race or or gender or or something like all of these things are are, are really unclear in AI algorithms right now. We're talking with uh, our good friend, uh, Sasha Lucioni. Uh, She is the director of scientific projects uh, for artificial artificial intelligence for humanity at Mila. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. It's been uh, an awesome show. Uh, don't forget to hit our contest page. We're giving away uh, an awesome Belkin wireless charging stand. This thing is all kinds of awesome. If you've got any of the latest smartphones from uh, uh, Apple or an Android phone, it probably has wireless charging capability. And this is fantastic. You basically plug it into the outlet, and then from that point forward, uh, you can just basically put your phone on the stand without having to plug in any additional wires. If you want to enter to win this, all you have to do is go to our website, getconnectedmedia.com. We've got all sorts of great blogs, how-to tips, uh, the latest product reviews uh, up there, and also all of our video podcasts from uh, Get Connected and also our sister show, The App Show, that uh, happens here every Sunday. Again, hit the newsletter tab on getconnectedmedia.com, enter to win, and uh, we'll be drawing the prize uh, shortly. I want to thank everyone that helps put the show together, including John and AJ and the rest of the team. We'll see you again next time.